Welcome to our podcast today on Small Business Horsepower. The Small Business Horsepower podcast is hosted by Podbean, but you can also catch us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or you can find us at our website, smallbusinesshorsepower.com. I'll tell you, today, I think you're going to be very, very pleased. We have with us today John Warlow on smallbusinesshorsepower.com. John has written several books, and I've heard some of his stuff. He's amazing. But let me have John give you his background. John, welcome to the program today on Small Business Horsepower. Thanks, Mayo. Good to be with you. Oh, it's great to have you. It's our pleasure. John... Tell me a little bit about your background. I read that you built four companies and sold them. So give me a little bit of background on some of those companies and some of the things that you've done in the past. For sure. So I've done a lot of different service-based businesses. So, you know, uh, graphic design, advertising. My last business was a quantitative market research business. And that's actually where I got the inspiration for a lot of what we do at Value Builder today. I was trying to sell that company. We built it up to five or $6 million in revenue. And I went to see an M&A professional and, and asked him, what, you know, what do you think it's worth? And I thought the answer was going to be a lot because of our revenue. And we had some great clients. We work with big Fortune 500 companies. And, and he said, well, it depends on the answer to a couple of questions. And I said, okay, fire away. What are your questions? And he said, number one, who does the selling? And I was like, I, you know, I was involved in the selling. So I told him I was still involved. And he said, well, who does the research? And I said, I was still involved in doing some of the research. And he said, well, I can't sell your company. There's, there's nothing to sell. And that kicked off a journey for me to really try to understand what I had built, even though it was profitable and had great clients, wasn't valuable in the eyes of an acquirer and what I needed to do to, to make it valuable. Ultimately, that company was acquired by a publicly traded company years later. And I tried to codify some of the things we did and changed in um, in making it more sellable into the various books that I've written, built to sell, that about a customer and now the art of selling your business. Yeah, that's great. And let's talk a little bit about built to sell. Creating, you wrote a business that can thrive without you. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, it's the ultimate sort of arbiter of whether you have built value in your company is whether it can succeed without you doing the work. If if your business is dependent on you showing up, doing the work, it's not valuable to somebody else, clearly, because if they're going to buy your company, you're going to leave and, and therefore it's not valuable. So the ultimate, and I don't mean to sort of overly simplify a very complicated science of business valuation, but the ultimate sort of acid test of whether you built something that you could sell is, can it thrive without you doing the work? And I think in a funny way, we set ourselves up for failure on that measure because we oftentimes chase revenue, right? Because the magazine covers and the lists are all revenue-based. The Inc. 5000 is the 5,000 fastest growing companies in the United States. And there's lots of lists like it, lots of media attention for people who build big businesses. But in actual fact, oftentimes big comes at the expense of valuable. When it's dependent on you to run, it's not very valuable to a third party. Whereas if you've got something that can thrive without you, no matter what size it is, it can actually be a sellable asset. So I talk to people about being the parent of your business rather than the CEO of your business. And what I mean by that is, you know, as parents, we know our job is to get our kids to eventually kind of get out of the house and onto their own two feet and be able to kind of become contributing members of society. Similarly, 
I think if we're thinking of our role as a CEO of a business, we're tempted to chase revenue. But if we think of it as a, the parent of our business, we can use the analogy to really think about like, how do I structure this company so that it's not dependent on me, that it can make independent decisions and that it can thrive without me. And when you do that, you've got the ultimate kind of poker hand in the game of life. You could sell it if you wanted, but you could hold it and know that you're building an asset over time. Yeah. And I was reading one of the articles you wrote and it says that pre-tax profit multiple you had wrote was 3.7 if you were heavily involved, went up to 4.5 if you cut yourself and out and fired yourself. That was very interesting. Yeah. That's one of the eight key drivers of company value that we measure over at valuebuilder.com. And it's called hub and spoke. And it really defines how dependent your company is on you personally. If your company is dependent on you, you're going to get a low hub and spoke score. If your business can thrive without you, you're going to get a high score. And to your point, it does end up translating into higher value. It also translates into better deal terms. I did a, a podcast on Built to Sell Radio where I interviewed a woman named Jody Cook. And Jody built a social media marketing company. So you want to get your product on Instagram and so forth. It was what she did. And she built it up and she was determined to sell her company without an earnout. And an earnout is where you take a bit of money up front and then you effectively have to hit goals into the future in order to get the rest of your money. And Jody was not interested in an earnout. And so she knew she had to structure this marketing agency, which in the beginning was very dependent on her. So she needed to structure it so that it could thrive without her. And one of the things she did was create what are called standard operating procedures, which are basically instructions instructions for your employees to follow when you're not there to help them. And ultimately, she sold that marketing agency for, I think if memory serves, it was close to seven times EBITDA. So it was a great sale for her. But what was really interesting is that she left two weeks after. There was no earnout, And that's virtually unheard of in the marketing services arena. Usually marketing services businesses are sold where you know the, the entrepreneur gets 40, 50, 60% of their money up front. And the rest of it is at risk in an earnout that they've got to earn over three, five years. Jody left after two weeks in part because her business could succeed without her. And the secret sauce she determined was to create these standard operating procedures. You beat me to the punch. One of my questions was, I'm interested in the eight key drivers that acquirers of a business look for. And the two that I had written down was the one you went into the hub and spoke. And the other one was this Switzerland structure I was interested in. So you beat me on one of the two, but tell me about this Switzerland structure. Let's go. Yeah, the Switzerland structure, the name was inspired by the country of Switzerland, where, as you know, it's kind of smack dab in the middle of Europe. It's this little dot beside France and Germany and Italy. And, you know, if you looked at it physically, you'd say, well, that's definitely a country that would be dependent on the euro and an active member of European politics. In fact, neither is true. It doesn't accept the euro as currency or it doesn't use the euro as currency. And it's not really a big actor in the European Union because... They want geopolitical independence. They don't, you know, they didn't send troops to Iraq. They didn't join either of the two world wars, even because, again, they're at the Swiss are absolutely obsessed with independence. It's kind of like a joke, right? I, I want to be Switzerland on this. It means that, you know, I don't want to pick a side. And the same is true of the most valuable companies in that they are not dependent on any one customer, employee, 
or supplier. Let me say that again. The most valuable companies are not dependent on any customer. So customer concentration is below 15%. No one car, you know, company or customer makes up more than 15%. It also means you've got to be dependent of any employee and supplier. And supplier is one where oftentimes we forget about the supplier dependency, but increasingly that's becoming a problem with these platform companies. Like for example, I did an interview on Built to Sell Radio recently with a guy named Ben Leonard who built a company called Beast Gear. They were in the business of selling workout gear, like weightlifting straps and skip ropes and accessories associated with that. And he built it up, but 90% of his revenue was on Amazon. He was an Amazon reseller. And when he went to sell the business, he struggled a little bit to get the valuation that he was hoping for because the acquirer said, sure, but you're dependent on Amazon. If Amazon delists you or, you know, for whatever you know reason demotes you in their search algorithm, that's going to impact your revenue. And so he had to accept a slightly lower multiple than had he had other off Amazon revenue. Another example is a guy interviewed A.D. Pinar out of South Africa who built a, a cart abandonment software application that he sold in the Shopify store. So Shopify, as you know, is this online you know, e-commerce company that allows you to sell your goods online. And it's been growing like a juggernaut over the last few years, right? And the kind of rising tide lifts all boats is as Shopify grew, this little software app that AD Pinar was selling in the Shopify app store was growing in lockstep, right? It was going like a hockey stick. And then unfortunately, when he went to sell the company, he was partially discounted based on the fact that he was dependent on Shopify as a supplier, effectively a platform. And his acquirer looked at it as a potential risk. And so again, to maximize your score on the Switzerland structure, what you want to do is make sure that your business is not dependent on a single customer, employee, or supplier. No, I know all about it, John. I mean, when I sold my company in 2016, a European company that bought my company was looking for me to be associated with a certain supplier because they had that same supplier relationship in Europe and they wanted it in the U.S. So that's one of the reasons they found me. But interesting what happened to me is we entered due diligence and one of the other suppliers that I felt was key and I have wanted to dismiss me. <laughs> and this is two weeks before due diligence happened. So I saved that product line, but it really emphasized that, you know, how linked I was to a couple of key manufacturers. And so I know exactly what you're talking about there. Yeah. In that case, oftentimes the value in the business will come down to the customer's perception of who their supplier is. Like, for example, if you are you know, a supplier of a, a European product and the end consumer of that product believes you're just a middleman, as it were, that business is going to get discounted versus if the customer thinks they're buying from you and that you're going to source the very best supplier to solve their customer need, regardless of what brand that happens to be, then you're in the driver's seat because the customer sees you as the ultimate purveyor of whatever it is you sell as opposed to the end supplier. So I'll give you an example from the kitchen and bathroom space. Like if you're a supplier of Bosch refrigerators, right? And all you do is distribute Bosch refrigerators to home retailers as an example, your company's not going to be very valuable as opposed to if you consider your end customer to be the retail store and you're going to supply them with whatever happens to be the best in breed kitchen equipment. And that may be Bosch one day, it may be Rubbermaid the next day. That's a much more powerful position to be in when you determine what 
to provide your customers with versus just being, quote, a middleman who is distributing someone else's product? I understand. When I first started my business, I started it as an export trading company. And we're not here to talk about my story right now, but it's just an example of how many times I was cut out at the end between the end user and the supplier or manufacturer because I bought two parties together. So a few years into it, I just totally changed my model and I didn't make it about who I'm representing. I took a group of products and I worked with all the suppliers and manufacturers in that group and I tried not to tie myself to any one of them so that the end user would rely on me to reach out to whoever that I could procure for them. And I had multiple suppliers. Of course, though, John, over time, you do develop, I did at least, key distribution relationships. That's a different thing where manufacturers then start to, based on your volume, feed you information and rely on you to promote the products. So anyway, John, tell me about that value builder system in general. Yeah, it's a practice management software for business advisors where we offer it to business coaches, consultants, accountants, and other professional advisors who want to help their clients improve the value of their business. So it's a practice management software. We offer not only the kind of front-end marketing solutions, but also some of the actual tools that our advisors use to help their clients understand the value of their company, as well as how to improve the value of their company over time. So again, our customers tend to be business brokers, mergers and acquisitions professionals, coaches and consultants who use it uh, as their sort of back-end practice management software. That's great. And I saw this thing on your website about the key components. I love it. It says here, you build, you accelerate, and you harvest. Tell me about those three components. I mean, I think that's what it's all about. Yeah, it's the journey, I think, of entrepreneurship, really. And it correlates to the trilogy of books I've written. So Built to Sell is, is really about how do you create a business that someone might want to buy. So getting out of the trap of the kind of owner-operated business where the company is deeply dependent on you, how do you build a company that is transferable effectively or uh, you know, a sellable asset that's Built to Sell? And then the automatic customer is really about recurring revenue. And there's nothing that I've seen that accelerates the value of your business faster than having recurring revenue. And then the final book, The Art of Selling Your Business, is really about harvesting the value of your company and punching above your weight class when it comes to selling. You know, when you sell your business, there's a private equity group or a strategic investor on the other side of the negotiation table. They do this all day long. Right. And it leads to a mismatch of information when the owner, who probably only does it once in their career, maybe twice in their career, just doesn't have the knowledge about how to harvest the value that they've created. So I wrote The Art of Selling Your Business to really help owners punch above their weight when it comes to selling and make sure they don't kind of they avoid some of the unforced errors associated with selling your company. Yeah. And I tell you, one of the lines I love from something you wrote is, Hang on to your equity like a selfish child clutching a bag of M&Ms and raise outside money only on your last resort. And I was reading this thing, which just blew me away because I think that was one of the keys for me, which was I always said, look, I'm not having family invest and friends. That was for other reasons. And I'm not having any partners or anyone invest. So as 
hard as it was to build that with your own equity, to climb that mountain, when you climbed it, I felt like I didn't have anyone else to answer to in that. Can you talk a little bit about that for our listeners? By the way, before you do that, you're listening to John Warlow today on Small Business Horsepower. We're so happy to have him. John, tell me of how important that is to make that climb as hard as it is, but try to retain your own equity. I think it comes back to some psychographic research we did into the motivations of most small business owners. We categorize small business owners into one of three groups or buckets. The first is called mountain climbers, and they are motivated to grow their business at virtually any cost. The second group is called freedom fighters, which who are motivated by independence. So for them, growth is not quite as important as independence. And craftspeople are motivated by mastery. So they want to be known as being a master of their craft. Think of the massage therapist, the copywriter, et cetera. And mountain climbers, when they reach a point where they cannot continue to grow their top line revenue without giving up some equity, you know, sharing some equity with a key employee or raising a round of angel investments or whatever. Mountain climbers do that because for them, growing a significant business of a significant size is their highest priority. And so for them, growth and achievement trumps independence. The second group, freedom fighters, make a very different decision at the same fork in the road. For them, when they reach the same fork, they will throttle back their growth rate in order to retain 100% of their equity. For them, independence and the ability to call their own shots and not answer to anyone is their most important priority. And so I think it comes down to really having an honest conversation with yourself and saying, what's important to me? Am I trying to be the next Elon Musk, the next Steve Jobs, the next whomever? In which case you're a mountain climber and you're going to have to give up some equity in order to do that and some control and run your business in a different way. Equally, if your goal is not to become the next Elon Musk, in fact, it's to build a company that can thrive without you, that is independent of you and independent of anyone, then you're probably a freedom fighter. And the real shame or the tragedy is when people who are freedom fighters end up giving or selling equity because they haven't really done the soul searching to know who they are and what they want. So I would just encourage everybody to just do some deep thinking about their highest priority. Is it to achieve something? In which case, you're probably a mountain climber and you need to probably act like one and be prepared to give up some equity and some control. And if you're in a different bucket, if your focus and main priority is independence and freedom, then it doesn't make sense in many cases to sell equity because you're going to find that that is going to bristle. You're going to bristle under the spying eyes, so to speak, of an outside investor. Yeah, but I like one of these lines you wrote in one of your articles. It says here, selling equity in a company is like losing your virginity. Once it's gone, you can't ask for it back. It's a pretty crude uh, analogy, but I think it's accurate. Yeah, you can't get it back. I mean, I guess you could buy your equity back, but I mean, that's pretty rare and pretty unusual. And and I think, look, when you sell equity, whether it's, you know, you you sell 5% to your mother-in-law or you sell 50% to a private equity group, Regardless of what you sell and how much and what proportion, you are really starting a timer that is ticking because your obligation is to get a return for your shareholders. Even if you're the largest shareholder, you are required to act as though your goal is to get a return for your shareholders. And they're going to want you to make good on that. And therefore, the only way you do that is to sell your company. So the moment you take equity, the clock starts ticking to sell. 
And if that's your goal, then that's fine. And if it's not, then don't take equity. Don't raise money because I think you'll end up just conflicted in the process. Speaking of that, let's talk about, I was listening to another podcast you did and an interesting point came up about selling in this time in COVID because you had made a statement that half of these businesses, small businesses want to exit in the next five years. And I think, is that COVID driving that? Do you have any thoughts still on that subject? Yeah, we've done some research in this because one of the things that a value builder we get is a lot of data. We've had 60,000 business owners complete their value builder questionnaire, which is kind of like our intake questionnaire that people take. And we've analyzed the responses to that prior to the pandemic starting in March of 2020. And then we looked at the eight month window immediately following March of 2020. So like kind of comparing before and during, as we record this here in in August, I'm mindful that we're not in any way out of the pandemic. And, And so I'm not suggesting we are. I'm just saying that we looked at the data pre and during. And what we learned was that the average business owner has moved forward their sell by date by 20% as a result of the pandemic, meaning they're planning to sell 20% sooner. And in part, we think that's because they're tired and they're burnt out. And it's been a very challenging time for a lot of small business owners. And so they're moved forward their sell-by date. The other thing that I think is really interesting is the proportion of business owners who plan to sell their business to their kids or transition their business to the next generation of family members has dropped significantly. Before the pandemic, it was close to 19% of the business owners that we analyzed through Value Builder that had that intention to pass their business down to their kids. Today, it's less than 10% of business owners plan to pass their kids their business. And again, we can only theorize, the data is quantitative, but we can only theorize as to why that would be the case. Our assumption is that it is as a result of just the stress that business owners are feeling, in particular, those service businesses who are over under an enormous amount of stress, they don't want to pass an albatross on to their kids. And so now they're wanting to sell sooner and sell to a third party because they don't want to pass down this ball of stress to their kids. John, you beat me to it again. I had that question listed next about that third party. I felt the same way when I sold my business. Let me ask you a question, John, because my feeling is this, okay? If you're really small and you know what we're talking about and you do everything yourself, then it's not really, we're not talking about sellability anyway, but you can run a business. And if you're really, really big, then you're in another position, but it's that middle level where those companies have significant payrolls, employees, especially during COVID, but even before, it just seems like the bigger guys are getting bigger and the smaller guys are just trying to hang in there or they have to attach their cart to a more powerful horse. Do you think that's one of the reasons they're looking at it and going, I would rather attach this card to a more powerful horse, but I don't want to give it to my kids and let them worry about it. Yeah, I think there's some of that. The other piece that I think is impacting the small business market is that proximity, being the local guy or gal, has become virtually worthless in terms of a value proposition. So there was a time 25 years ago where you could say, I have swimming pool chemicals. So you can buy your chlorine from me. You can buy your pucks from me. We'll bow, you know, whatever. And because I was down the street 
from you, you would buy from me because it was convenient or dog food, right? Like, you know, you have a specialty dog food or specialty dog retail store. And the reason that I bought my dog food from you was because you were happened to be convenient. Well, we all know that Amazon has come along and disrupted just about any industry. It's the anything, everything store. And therefore, all of the products and services, many of the products and services that used to sell based solely on being the local guy or gal have become irrelevant. That value proposition is no longer meaningful. When you can get Amazon to ship you the chlorine pucks, in many cases, the same day, in all cases, the next day, or you know the 30 kilogram or 30 pound bag of dog food, being the local provider is no longer a point of differentiation. And that has disrupted the small business market enormously. It has in many cases, put companies out of business, or we've got the walking dead where we've got lots of businesses that are just struggling to sort of keep their head above water. And at the same time, there are businesses that have realized and pivoted their value proposition away from being the local provider to something else and something else that's differentiating or unique. And so I think that's what all businesses need to eventually do is kind of move away from we're the local guy or gal to a situation where there's some other reason to buy from you other than proximity. And the companies that are doing that, I think, are winning. And the companies that are clinging to, we're just the local provider, are eventually becoming extinct. You're not kidding. I mean, it's not even just the dog food. Listen to this. I would think that if you're going to buy a pair of shoes, because half the ones don't fit me, those you have to at least go to your local Main Street or your store or wherever department store and try them on. Nope. People buy shoes on Amazon. They send them to you and you try three pairs. You don't like it. They take them back for free. <laughs> How do you top that? It's a great point. And, you know, Tony Shea, the late founder of Zappos, which was acquired by Amazon, they knew they were in the commodity business. They knew they were competing with, to some extent, the local provider of shoes, the local you know high street retailer or whatever. And so in order to make Zappos differentiating, knowing that the, the value proposition of being close or pro proximity was becoming diluted, they focused on branding their service offering was sort of branded. So they, you know, they had their two-way guarantee, as you describe, where you could not only have them shipped free, but you could also return them free. You could keep that pair of shoes for 365 days and return them at any time. They did not bonus their call center employees based on how short their calls were. They did the exact opposite. They encouraged their employees to spend as much time as you want. And in fact, they celebrated and they have, you know, an award for the person who has spent the most time with a customer. I think the award is something like 10 hours and 12 minutes where that tell like the telesales person on the other end of the phone for Zappo spent literally over 10 hours with one customer. And that's exactly the opposite of what most call centers do. And again, it's about differentiating what you do. In the case of the local retail uh, shoe retailer, it's no longer good enough to be the local shoe retailer. You have to find something unique that makes it worth buying from you. That's what Zappos did, and they built a $900 million company and got acquired by Amazon. John, we're running out of time here, but um, before we go, tell me a little bit about your podcast. I read that it was rated uh, one of the top 10 podcasts in this space by Forbes and so on. So tell our audience a little bit about your show. Yeah, it's called Built to Sell Radio, where we interview a different entrepreneur every week and ask them about their exit. And the idea is that there's lots of great podcasts like yours that talk about how 
how do you build a business? Lots of great marketing podcasts, lots of great leadership podcasts. What we really focus on is the final chapter, meaning how do you punch above your weight when it comes to selling your company and what do you need to do to effectively harvest the value of your business? So we don't spend a lot of time with guests on how they built it. We focus how they sold it and what was that process like for them? It's called Built to Sell Radio and um, it's been a real joy for me to do. I think we're up to 350 episodes or something like that. So it's been it's been a lot of fun. And once again, tell us about your trilogy of books and where people can find those, the titles. About Built to Sell, The Automatic Customer, and The Art of selling your business. And if you're kind of curious, but don't want to spring for all three books, you can go to builttosell.com slash horsepower. And we put together a, a landing page for your listeners where they can download a cheat sheet on the nine subscription models, a bit of a checklist. They can get the eight key drivers of value in a video series. And we've actually put together the Art of Selling Your Business workbook, which is a companion book to the actual hard copy book, which helps you apply some of the lessons in the art of selling your business to your own company. So it's all free and it's just at builttosell.com slash horsepower. John, thanks so much for coming today on Small Business Horsepower on our podcast. We'd love to have you back and we really appreciate the insight you've given us today. Thank you so much for coming on the program. It's great to be with you. 